Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Let's pray together as we're getting started here. Father, I, as I'm standing here, I am so aware this morning of my weakness. I am so aware of my need for you. And as we have your word in front of us, I am so aware that if, um, if by your spirit you do not take your word and help us to understand it, if you don't take what I say and I breathe life into it, we are wasting our time. And Lord, I know that that is not what you desire. And so I know that you are wanting to, to use your word in our life, in our lives this morning. You want to reveal yourself to us. You want us to see Jesus. You want our lives to be transformed. You want us to have more faith in you. You want us to be encouraged. You want to bring us correction. You, you want us to walk in life. And so I'm asking this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would help us. We are a needy people. Um, you know that, and I praise, praise you when you remind us of that so that we can come to you, who is our strength. You are our refuge. You are our hope. And so I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would right now fill us, help us to pay attention, help us to hear with ears to obey, to glorify you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to be continuing in our Advent teaching series that we began two weeks That's that we've entitled, The Light Has Dawned. And this is a series where we are examining the lives of individuals who played a specific role in that first Advent, in that first Christmas. And so far we have looked at the life of Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and we looked at Joseph last week, the husband of Mary, the earthly father of Jesus. And this morning, we plan to look at the wise men and King Herod. And before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Um, have you ever noticed in life how easy it is to get distracted? Um, to get hijacked by the tyranny of the urgent and those things that are secondary issues. And when that happens, we end up missing what's most important. Have you ever noticed that life has a way of doing that? Well, you know, one of an example that is a really good example of how we can miss the point is weddings. Weddings is something that that I've been to a lot of weddings. And as disciples of Jesus, we know that the main point of a wedding is to join a man and a, wo a woman together in holy matrimony. And the main point of a marriage, it's not the only point, but the main point is to be a picture of the relationship of Jesus with his church and what that relationship is supposed to to be like. But you know, it's easy to miss that point in marriage, isn't it? But it's also easy to miss that point at a wedding. And I have been to a ton of 
weddings. And I remember years ago, there was a, a wedding that I was at and the bride, a beautiful uh, lady who loves the Lord, she missed the point on her wedding day. And that's because she had certain expectations of what that day was supposed to be like. She had certain dreams and her dreams were that this was her day. Have you ever heard that, ladies, that that's your day? Uh, that's not a biblical teaching there, but, and I'm not trying to take anything away from you. But she believed it to such a point that she felt entitled that her day had to go her way. And if you've ever had a, been at a wedding, that usually doesn't happen. There's always something that comes up or some things that come up that cause things to go off track. And so during this time, she became impatient when things were not going her way. She became what I think is called a demanding bridezilla. There's, I think there's a TV show on that uh, that glorifies that for some reason. But in, anyway, and instead of enjoying her day with her friends and her family and glorifying God, she was very difficult to be around. And needless to say, after it was all said and done and, and over, she came to her senses. She realized that she, what she had done, she realized that she had missed the point of her wedding. And she, because she was a disciple of Jesus, she was able to humble herself and go back to the people that she had hurt and apologize. The point I'm trying to make here is this, that it is often easy to get caught up in the secondary details of life and miss the point of what's most important. And this, I want to carry this over today, today, to today's passage because that's what we can do when we're reading the passage today. If we're not careful, when we look at the, the Christmas account, if, if we're not careful, we can come to this account that is true and it's somewhat a, a familiar narrative and we can get sidetracked in the midst of this narrative, as we're going to see as we're getting into it. There's a lot of questions that I'm going to be asking this morning from this passage. And there's a lot of important secondary details that if we're not careful, they will take us off course. They will lead us away, and we will miss the main point of what God is trying to communicate here. Okay, this is a difficult passage in some areas as we get into it. It's a narrative and I'm just going to just say up front, it's probably going to leave us with more questions than answers this morning. And, and you know what? I'm okay with that. That's okay. Uh, because my hope this morning is not to try to answer all of our questions. But my, my goal this morning is that we will leave here not missing the point of this Christmas passage. And that our faith in God and our confidence in him, that it's going to be strengthened uh, even when we don't have all the answers to our questions. So with that said, let's start in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, stop right there. Question number one, we see the wise men. So we got to ask the first question we got to ask is who were the wise men? And you know, most of what we think, most of what we know about the wise men does not come from this text. Most of what we think about them, uh, most of what we have seen about them are come from legends and traditions that have been passed down over the centuries. And and for example, uh, we know that there were how many wise men are we told there were? 
three. We three kings of Orient are, right? So we, we've been, we sing a song about it. Probably the reason that, it, that we think that there are three kings is because they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But according to this text, it does not tell us how many kings came. And it doesn't ex- say exactly where from the east they came. Now, this is because it's probably uh, Matthew's readers, this would have been written in their time, they probably knew what from the east meant. Kind of like this morning, if I stand up here and say, you know what, northerners are annoying and rude, okay? You would know who I'm talking about in here, right? You would know that I'm talking about Yankees, right? Okay. Now, here's how I would know that you're a real northerner. It's because you wouldn't be offended by what I just said. You'd be like, yeah, so what? What's it to you? You know, northerners can be like that. So, but 2,000 years from now, if someone read what I had said, they might go, huh, I wonder who the northerners are that they were ta- he's talking about. Are they Canadians or, or somewhere in that area? So, but everyone in the, they probably knew in this text who the wise men from the east were. And, you know, even though we don't know exactly who they were, there is a probability that they were learned men who were skilled in philosophy, in medicine, in, nat- in the natural sciences, and, and in a type of astrology that studied the movements of the stars and the planets. When God created the heavens and the earth, he gave such order. I, would, I need to study this more, but if you study the the, the patterns of the stars and the planets, they work like clockwork. They are predictable. And you can, and that's, that's what these men would have been. They would have studied the stars. Um, they were thinkers. They used their minds. They were seekers. They were wise men. And it's, when it talks about the East, it's widely accepted among scholars that they possibly, maybe even probably, journeyed from the area of Persia. So I've got a map here that I want you to see. Uh, this is Persia is, is modern-day Iran. And the distance, which on this map is showing it to be Babylon, but that distance from there to Jerusalem would have probably been somewhere between 800 to 900 miles. And it's been proposed... Another thing that's been proposed is that if the Magi came from Persia, it is very likely that they were familiar with the writings of a Jewish prophet by the name of Daniel. Daniel lived in Persia during the exile. Uh, he, He served in the king's court. And we know, if you've read Daniel, the book of Daniel, we know that he had a vision from God where the Messiah, the kingdom that would never perish or go away, that would destroy all other kingdoms, was going to come. He wrote about the the coming Messiah. So it is possible that these wise men were very familiar with these prophecies, and when they saw the star, they, they connected it with these prophecies, and they're like, I want to find out who this king is. This could be true, um, it might not be, but it is possible. All right, so verse, that's, just, that's just verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. So the wise men came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose 
and have come to worship him. Now this raises question number two. What was the star that rose? Inquiring minds want to know. This is, this is one of those, those questions that people are really, this, this subject they're really interested in. Aren't you, wouldn't you like to know what that star was? Um, there are a lot of convincing arguments that tell us, to try to tell us what that star was. There's documentaries that are very, um, that can, that are very persuasive about this topic. Uh, the word translated here, star, is the Greek word aster, which means star or planet. So when it's interpreted as star, that, is, that's, that could be an accurate translation of that. Um, people think that because it was uh, is translated as star, they speculate that maybe it was a supernova, maybe it was a comet, maybe it was uh, a couple of planets aligning in such a way that they looked like a brighter star. And you know, if you study these things, some of these arguments are very convincing. I've, I've studied it and watched videos on this, and it's, it's one of those things like, man, that's very interesting. But none of them fully meet what is described here in Scripture. There's, there's another uh, hypothesis or thought that it could be, the star could be a heavenly messenger, uh, like an angel, because, um, the, again, the word aster it, it sometimes in the New Testament denotes angels or messengers. For example, in Jude 13, when Jude is talking about false teachers, he calls them wandering stars. Uh, also in Revelation 12, verse 4, this is a passage that is, is teaching uh, about Satan. Uh, they call him, he's called the dragon in uh, Revelation 12. But it's, it's, it seems to be referring to fallen angels who followed Satan in the rebellion against God. And it says in verse 4 that Satan's tail, or the dragon's tail, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So, question, was this an angel? Was the star an angel? Uh, it could be. It, it may be. Maybe not. Uh, you know what? It may have just been a miracle that God himself did in that moment. Um, we're, listen, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We're just not sure. We are not sure what the star is. And this is where I want to stop. And, and I want to ask us, you know, as students of the scriptures, what are we supposed to do with passages like that that give us more, that seem to give us more questions than answers? What, what do we do with those? passages like this one. Well, as uh, one pastor has said, when you're studying the scripture, usually the main things in the text are the plain things. The main thing that God wants to see in the text or come away from the text is that which is plain. So instead of getting derailed by what we don't know, okay, like all those things I just brought up, we need to focus on what we do know. What has God plainly communicated to us in this text? What I'm trying to say is that if it's important, for example, if it was important for us to know exactly what the star was, there would be more details in there. If it was extremely important for us to know exactly where the wise men in the East came from, guess what? Those details would have been in the text. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't ponder these things? Does this mean that we should never kind of like investigate these things and study them? 
And I would say, no, that does not mean that. We, we, we need to do this. As long as our, our search doesn't lead us away from what the text is meant to lead us to. You, you understand what I'm saying? When the, when the, the uh, Magi were following the star, they weren't simply just wanting to fi- follow the star. They were trying to find out where the star was leading to, to Jesus. And so what can we plainly see here in the text? Well, again, you know, just like the appearance of angel, the angel Gabriel, remember when he came to Zechariah and Mary? The Virgin Mary, when he told her that you're going to have a baby. And just like the two miraculous births, one, John the Baptist was given to an aging couple that couldn't have children, and then to the Virgin Mary. What we're seeing here is that God is announcing the birth of his son. He's doing something in a unique, he's doing something in an intriguing and an extraordinary way to point us to this baby is no ordinary baby. And what he's doing in this passage is he is leading truth seekers that are from a distant land to his son through the rising of his son's star, whatever that is. And this is just a reminder to us all, listen, if someone wants to know the truth, someone desires to know the truth, God will make the truth known to them. And they will eventually find it in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, that's verse 2. 23 verses to go. All right, so let's get to verse 3. We're going to move a little bit faster here. When Herod, okay, we've got to stop here. Okay, hold on. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now that word, troubled, Again, it's the exact word. If you remember back when we were looking at Zechariah, that's the exact word that, that uh, Zechariah felt when he saw the angel ne- standing next to the altar. It says that he was troubled or he was terrified. This is what, you know what you feel when life isn't going the way you want it to and you be- feel this anxiety. You feel stirred up inside and you feel anxiety. You might be feeling that this morning. You're troubled this morning. You're stirred up. That's what Herod was feeling. That's what the people were feeling in Jerusalem. Now, why were the people troubled? Why was Herod troubled when they heard about the wise men? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to answer the question of who was Herod. Okay, this is the third question we're looking at. Now, although there is not a a lot of information on the Magi, and there's not a lot of information about the star, there is a lot of information about Herod. And I was surprised to find out that there is actually more primary evidence from original sources concerning Herod than than there is concerning our Lord Jesus. There's more than the Apostle Paul, more than Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great. And that's because there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who wrote two book scrolls about this man's life. And in those scrolls, And even in our text this morning, there is, well, not in our text this morning, but in his scrolls, there's good things, and then there's a lot of bad things that we find out about about Herod. Now, the good things is that he was a great politician. Herod was was known uh, for being a great diplomat, and 
And two, two, uh, two of his greatest accomplishments included rebuilding Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, and he also founded the city of Caesarea. Uh, he also helped Jerusalem and, and the surrounding cities to uh, prosper economically. And so it's been said that everything he touched diplomatically turned to gold. So he was a good, he was a great politician. And although he was successful in uh, being a politician, he is remembered by many of us as having a pretty dark side. He's, he's known as being a paranoid ruler when it came to defending his throne. And, and this is because, one of the reasons is because he had 10 wives. I mean, 10 wives, if you had 10 wives, it'd probably bring paranoia, wouldn't it, to have 10 wives? But that's not why. It's because these 10 wives had 10, at least 10 sons. They all gave him at least one son. And so these sons sought to take control of daddy's throne. And, and there's accounts uh, that have been written of how these brothers tried to poison one another. Uh, it also talks about how Herod's distrust was so great that he ends up murdering at least three of them. He puts his favorite wife to death on the charge of treason. When it came to his throne, nothing was going to get in the way of that. Herod guarded his, his, uh, his rule so fiercely that no one was safe, not even his family. This is such a well-known fact that the Roman emperor Augustus is recorded as saying, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. So, as you might imagine, King Herod, uh, he was greatly despised by the people. Just he was a hardened man. And um, Herod knew this. And so he did, at the end of his life, he did a, a really wicked thing. He uh, had all of the, the uh, beloved Jewish leaders arrested and imprisoned. And he told them to execute them the moment he died. Now, the reason he did that was because he knew that when he died, everyone would be rejoicing. And he wanted to make sure that there was mourning in the streets at his death. This is how wicked, at least to some degree, that we, this man was. So when it says that Herod was troubled, that's understandable. And all of Jerusalem was troubled, that's easy to understand. Because unlike the wise men, he would have seen the birth of Jesus not as a welcomed gift, but rather as a potential threat to his kingdom. And so his subjects would have been troubled because they weren't sure how Herod was going to react to this news. So verse 4 says, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and the prophet that wrote this is Micah, he said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is God's plan right here, prophesied. The promised Messiah. And he would be a ruler who would lead, the, lead and shepherd the people of God. Listen, it's written. It was written. It was going to happen. Nothing was going to be able to stand in the way of this, of God's plan, not even a king. 
an earthly king. Now, in verses 7 through 15, I'm going to summarize these. Um, After hearing this, he summons the wise men to himself, as, as most of us know. And he says, go to Bethlehem and seek out this child. When you find him, come back and let me know about him. Why? Because I want to worship him too. We know that that's not true. We'll see that in just a minute. But they go. They see the star arise again. They rejoice greatly. They go to the house where Jesus was. And it says that they bowed down and worshiped. And we need, this is important. They worshiped him. They didn't worship Mary. They worshiped Jesus. And they gave him the gifts. And then it says that they had a, a dream uh, from, a, from an angel that uh, they should not go back to Herod. And so it says that they departed to their own country by another way. Joseph also is warned in a dream by an angel to flee to Egypt. So he gets up and he goes to Egypt to escape Herod. Now, verse 16 says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I can only um, imagine the, the horror, the sorrow, the confusion um, that the mothers and the fathers, the the little brothers and sisters, the, the community experienced in that moment. This is an extremely dark and, and wicked moment in this passage. Um, this is a question, or this is a, something that happened that they would have, I'm going to use the word wrestled, but that's not even the right word. I think the question that would have been coming to my mind, or it even comes to my mind, is why? You know, Why? Why, why did this happen? I would, I would use my reasoning like this. I would say, you know, okay, God is sovereign. Um, that means uh, that God has all knowledge and that God has all, all control and there's nothing that happens outside of that. This did not just sneak up on God and take him by surprise. God knew that this was going to happen. He allowed this to happen. And, and, it, and if God is sovereign, and if he's almighty, in other words, if there's nothing that God cannot do, and, and, and there isn't, I, my question is, why instead of sending an angel to Joseph and Mary and, and uh, Jesus, the baby, to get up and go to, to Egypt, why didn't he send that angel and strike down Herod and save these children? That's how I think about things. Why, why didn't God spare these innocent, these, these innocent babies? The question I'm asking is, why didn't God stop Herod? Another way that, that this is asked 
in our, in our day is why does God allow evil to prevail? That's a, that's a question that we all must wrestle with. That's a question that, that, it, that we hear a lot in our society. And this, but you know what? This isn't a new question. This is a question that has been asked for thousands of years. Even the psalmist in Psalm 82, thousands of years before this, he writes, or hundreds of years before this, he writes, how long, speaking to God, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He's saying, God, look at all the wickedness that is around us. How long are you going to let it keep on going? Verse 3, he says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Why, why does God seem to allow evil to prevail? Why didn't God stop Herod? Now, you may be asking a similar question in your own life. You may have a Herod, an act of evil that is in your life, that's, been, that's come upon you, or you're seeing it in, in the lives of people you love, and you're asking that. You're asking, could God, could God not have intervened, or can God still not intervene and, and change the situation? And the answer to that is yes. We know that the answer to that is yes, but the, that leads us to the question, then why didn't he? Why hasn't he? And when we come to that place, we are tempted to answer, because God, and then you fill in the blank. God, why aren't you doing this? And then we go, because God, we fill in the blank. And this morning, I, I want to, you know, when you're talking about why does God allow evil to persist, I think we can give theological answers and there's a time and a place for that. But this morning, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give, you know, just uh, like a, an answer that's wrapped in a shiny box with a, with a nice bow on top and say, here's why uh, God didn't stop Herod in this situation or why he hasn't intervened in your situation. And one of the reasons I'm not going to do that is because I don't know. I don't know why God didn't do, why, why he didn't uh, intervene here. But how are you going to fill in the blank? Because we all have to answer that question, don't we? Or try to. And I'll say this, if you're wrestling with this, if you're, you're asking the question, why did God do this? Or why does he, God allow that? I want to encourage you, while you're asking that question, why? Why does he allow it? Or why doesn't he intervene? While you're asking this question here, I want you to ask another question. Ask this question, but ask it alongside of this one. And that is, it's a simple question. Why did, Je why did God send Jesus? We have to ask that question when we're dealing with the question of evil. Even deeper into this question is why did God send his son to save a people who didn't want to be saved, who would end up rejecting him and putting him to death? Why did God give us Jesus? I think that is getting closer to the point of this passage, isn't it? The, the wise men. The star, and even King Herod, they are in this passage to, to point us. They are meant to point us to the birth of Jesus. 
Hair it is? Yeah. He reminds me that we need a savior. We need someone to save us. And, and asking, why did God give us Jesus? It, listen, it may not answer the questions of why God hasn't intervened in a, in a certain situation, but it will eliminate some of the false answers that we're tempted to put into that blank. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But earlier, in, uh, when we were reading Micah's prophecy that Jesus would be a ruler and a shepherd of God's people, my question that I would ask us this morning is what kind of ruler and what kind of shepherd did God send? And God gives us an answer to, to that in, in a lot of different passages. Passages. I'm just going to give you two. One is found in a very familiar passage to many of us, Isaiah 40. Speaking of this shepherd, listen what he says. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then again in Ezekiel 34, beginning with verse 11 and going to verse 16. For thus says the Lord God, who cannot lie. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick, and thick darkness. Verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, look at this, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. And then he says, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong, those, in other words, those who do evil to the flock, I will destroy. The shepherd is not just going to strengthen and care for and heal his sheep, but he is going to, this is a promise that he will deal, he will deal with the wicked in due time. If you look in our passage, God does deal with Herod. Verse 19 says, and when Herod died. Now, asking why God sent his son doesn't, like I said, doesn't necessarily answer the question of why did he allow this, but it eliminates at least four faulty answers. Number one, it eliminates the thought that God doesn't care. He didn't allow this because he doesn't care. We know this because 
of what we're celebrating. He came down and dwelt among us. Number two, we know that it doesn't mean that God can't relate with us. When he dwelt among us, he took on flesh. He was tempted just as we are. He experienced sorrows that we experienced. He was rejected. He felt loneliness. Members of his family died. John the Baptist was put to death. His head was cut off. This caused great sorrow in, in our Lord. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was deserted by all of his friends at the cross. It can't mean that, that God wants us, us to suffer. God's not trying to make us suffer. We know this because he suffered when he came in our place. And, and we know that it doesn't mean that he isn't going to do anything about the evil in this world. God is, in his time, going to remove all evil, all wickedness from, from this world. He's going to set us free, too, from ourselves, from our, our bodies of sin. We will sin no more. So listen this morning, as we consider the wise men, as we consider the star, as we consider the wicked King Herod, let's not miss the point. Let's not miss the point of what God is trying to show us, that even in darkness, God is at work. The light has dawned, and we can put our trust fully in him even when we have questions that can't be answered. Amen? Amen.